This morning we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 as we continue going our, through our summer in the Psalms. Or as some of you have already given me feedback after week one, we are now in summer in the P-Psalms. Uh, I'm not saying anything about Mandy Langstaff or anything who ran the slides this morning. I'm not, so anyhow, there, I said it, it happened. But we're going to look today at Psalm chapter 2. And if you are a student of history, if you study history or you're a fan of history, or even if you've maybe gotten caught up binge watching a show on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu during this, this quarantine that has had any type of historical lean to it, one of the things that you'll notice is that really since the time that mankind transitioned from being a nomadic people into more permanent settlements, that we have had this issue of who is going to rule and who is going to reign over said settlements and said nations. Um, it's who's going to sit upon the throne, who's, who's going to be the one with ultimate authority. And we see that no matter what the time frame, no matter what point in history, no matter what the location, nationality, ethnicity, no matter any of these things, religious beliefs, uh, diplomatic systems, governmental structures, None of it has changed the fact that there is always a struggle and a desire to reign and to be in a position of power. The fact that we, as, as fleshly humans, we have a tendency to mess things up big time. And I mean, and not just, it's, it's not just little mess-ups that we find out that we're, we're doing. Most of the time, they're huge. And it happens, we mess things up in our, in our own personal lives. We mess things up in our family lives. We mess things up in our community, in our region, in our state, in our nation. And we mess things up in our world. And why? Why, why do we see this, that whenever we try to fix things, whenever we try to do things in our own power, we see that we mess things up exponentially? Well, I believe that the answer to this why question is because our flesh is corruptible. And apart from a relationship of Je with Jesus Christ, and apart from us surrendering and living more by His Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives, rather than depending on more of the flesh, if we don't lean on Him and have this relationship with Him, then we're going to remain extremely and permanently corruptible. British historian Lord Acton makes the, made this statement. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So as we get ready to venture into Psalm chapter 2 this morning, we need to keep in mind that many scholars, theologians, consider Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2 almost like a pairing, a cooperative pairing that serves as a gateway into the entirety of the book of Psalms. And what we see is... As we continue to go through Psalms, the questions and the facts and the, 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 the foundation that's laid in these two chapters, we will continue to revisit over and over and over again because we see this one big question that's addressed now and that will be one of the themes of the entire book of Psalms is this, is will there be one, will there be one who is given ultimate authority, final authority, over all creation, over everything, under heaven and on earth. And I think it's safe to say that we're all at least vaguely familiar with the concept of authority. No matter who you are, where you're from, 
there's some level of authority that we find ourselves being in a place of, that we need to submit to in our lives. Children, children, I know you love it, but the fact of, the, fact of the matter is, is you submit to the authority of your parents. Students, you're generally under uh, the mercy of your teacher in a classroom. Employees report to a supervisor, and even if you are your own boss, even if you're the boss, you still have rules and regulations that you're required to follow. And I believe this morning, if there's anyone who understands really um, the majority of the dynamics of being under authority, it would be the people who are in the military. Because I believe that they have a very clear understanding of what it means to submit to authority. But is there, this morning, an ultimate authority, one to whom everyone, no matter what age, no matter what circumstances, no matter what situation, someone who has total and complete reign over everything both seen and unseen. Maybe a king of kings, per se, or perhaps a lord of lords. Well, let's look. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 2. And we're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter this morning. Psalm chapter 1. Or chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and why the people plot in vain? The, king of the, earth has, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who will put their trust in him. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for... Um, just allowing this to be able to be live, uh, video to be audio, that even in this time, again, God, that we're separated, we can still be together via technology, and we're thankful for that. Father, I just pray for this time in your word, that God, that you would help us to apply it in our lives, allow it uh, by opening our hearts, opening our minds, open our ears to hear what you have to say that, God, that we would allow this word to transform us as listeners. Father, I pray this morning as I, as I do every Sunday that you would use my voice, that you would use me to articulate your word rightly, correctly, and in a way that is honoring to you. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you inspire me this morning. I ask that you speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we just asked the question before I read the scripture of, is there this king of kings, this lord of lords, this one who is 
is over everything, both seen, unseen, in heaven and on earth. And Psalm 2 answers this question for us. Uh, this, song is a, this psalm is actually a song of a ruler's coronation. This would be something that would be, that would be sung over someone who is being coronated as a ruler. And before we get into the details of this psalm, I want to give us a little bit of context here uh, within the entire book of Psalms. Because like I mentioned before, Psalms 1 and Psalms 2 serve as a gateway into the rest of the psalm with the, with the theme. They're, they're kind of setting the tone for the way that we need to uh, consume and read the rest of the book of Psalms. It's one of the things that we see is this similarity that the, psalm, that the first chapter of Psalms starts with this word blessed, this concept of blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with this. So Psalm 1 and, and Psalm 2 are both bookended by this same concept of being blessed by God. In Psalm 1, you're seeing that you're blessed, you're, you're the happiest, you're the most satisfied, you're the most fulfilled, you're, you're flourishing, you're thriving, you're living your best life. Now, if you are meditating in God's word and in his law and in his instruction. And then what we see in Psalm 2 is that you're blessed, which is the same concept, the same idea as chapter 1, but this time you're blessed when you submit to God by recognizing his rule, his reign, and his authority with this one word that we're going to get to here in a minute, this one statement, when he says that it is the reign of his anointed one. Now, the tension between these two psalms, the conflict that we see in both psalms, in Psalm 1 and this week in Psalm 2, is that we are seeing this tension between two people, the righteous and the unrighteous, or the righteous and the wicked. And as we look at this psalm, we see it right away in verse 1. The psalmist asks a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So this psalm right away just addresses this question, and as God looks out over all the kings, all the kingdoms that are on earth, this question comes to mind of, why do you resist? Why are you resisting? Why are you rebelling against me? Why do you fight? Why do you scheme, and why do you actively oppose like you can actually be victorious? Why do you oppose the living God and his anointed one. And now let's take a look at this word anointed, just like we did last week with a few of the words. This week we're looking at Psalm 2, which if we were to describe in one word, it's, it's reign, God's reign over the earth, over everything, not just the earth, but over all of his creation. But I want us to look at another word just as we did last week, and, and this week it's the word anointed. What does that mean? Well, the word anointed comes from a Hebrew word, which we get our English word Messiah from. That's probably one that we're a little bit more familiar with than the word anointed. And what it is, it's a, anointing is an ancient tradition of the pouring on or the smearing on of oil over someone's head. And it was a ritual that was done to identify and consecrate or to set apart a particular person for a specific task or for an office. In the Old Testament, we read countless accounts of, of priests and kings being anointed to identify them and establish their role of authority over a people group, a nation, a sect of society, something. We see this countlessly in the Old Testament. 
Now, the people of God, the nation of Israel in particular in the Old Testament, had a lot of kings. And there was a lot of kings that were anointed to have the authority of the kingship over that particular nation. One that you're probably most familiar with is a man named David. King David, who wrote almost half of these psalms that we know of, of the 150 psalms that makes up this book, we see that King David, just like the king before him, and just like all the kings after him, King David was anointed to be the king. And just like the king before him, and just like all the kings after him, David failed. David fell. He stumbled. He wasn't perfect. He sinned frequently. And just like all the other kings, David's rule and his reign ended when his life ended. So that, that was it throughout the whole history of kings and kingdoms, both kingdoms of God and kingdoms of this world. If you have someone of authority, the kings or whoever that person of authority is, their authority ends the moment that their life ends. So as we get a glimpse here of what it looked like to have a transition of authority with this anointing, there was prophets and priests and writers in the Old Testament that spoke of this anointed one who would come eventually. And they spoke about him, that he was going to set everything right, and he was going to establish God's kingdom, and all of the injustices, all of, all of the things that were wrong, that were being done wrong to God's people and the nation of Israel, that he was going to make it right. He was going to bring peace to the nation of Israel. He was going to bring prosperity to the nation of Israel. And this was the Messiah. This was that anointed one that they were looking for. And for years, for the, all the oppression that the nation of Israel went through, hundreds of years, they had this hope. And their gaze was fixed on this one who was foretold about, this one who was coming, this anointed one, this Messiah, as their hope of freeing them. And we can see in Psalm chapter 2, as we just read, that People didn't receive God's anointed one as freeing. That authority, they said that it, they were going to break the bondage of this oppression. So this nation of Israel, they were looking for this great Messiah, this freer, this one who is going to come and make everything right. And we kind of get a glimpse, really, into the level of hope. Because think about it, it's been hundreds of years. You've had generation after generation after generation teaching about, talking about, meditating on, looking forward to and anticipating eagerly this Messiah who's coming. And then we get a glimpse in the Gospel of John. We get, kind of get a glimpse of how everyone, everyone was hanging on and looking to this anointed one, this Messiah as their source of hope. When we see in John that Jesus, after his travels, takes a, takes a break and he sets down near a well to, to rest. And a Samaritan woman comes at that same time to draw from the well. Jesus was on his way to Galilee and he stopped by Samaria to take, take a little bit of a break, to get a little bit of a rest. And, and there's a whole lot of dynamics in this story uh, that, that I don't have time to get into this morning, but I really, truly encourage you to look into the deeper meanings of this passage of this Samaritan woman, Jesus, and their interaction at the well. But basically, when she comes to the well, Jesus asks her to draw him a drink of water. And a conversation ensues, a conversation that very quickly turned very personal 
and a conversation that very quickly turned very spiritual as well. And what we see at one point, this, this Sumerian woman looks and says that I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. He will reveal to us all things. All of these things that we've heard about our entire lives, all of these things that have been foretold through prophets' writings, all of these things that generations of our families and our kingdom have talked about and yearned for and looked forward to, he will come and he will reveal all of these things. And Jesus' response, I who speak to you am he. So in that moment, and I don't think that we can truly grasp the weight and the gravity of that statement for someone, a a whole kingdom, generations of people who have been so hopeful for this Messiah to arrive, that weight of hearing someone go, it's me. And right here, coming from the voice of Jesus himself saying, I am that anointed one that Psalms 2 was talking about. I am the one that's been foretold. I am the one that has been prophesied. I am the one here now whom you have hoped in for generations upon generations. You see, I believe that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the people in Psalm, in the time of Psalms 2, and we know that the people in Jesus' time, they had a hard time accepting the fact that he was the one. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. Because in both instances, in Psalm 2 and during Jesus' lifetime, they were expecting something completely different from the Messiah. They were expecting him to come and establish an earthly kingdom, to set everything right immediately. To In the New Testament, it was to run out these Roman oppressors that that had oppressed the nation of Israel so badly. And even in Psalm 2, they're saying, listen, we don't want this guy because he's going to oppress us. And I believe that one of the reasons is that, that Jesus faced so much resistance and still faces resistance is because the idea of turning over authority and submitting to someone other than ourselves, that's, that's a tough concept. That's something that we struggle with. That's outside of our control, our, uh, of responding to our own impulses, responding to our own desires, our own wills, our, our own thoughts. If we do that, then in our flesh, that to us becomes completely and totally unacceptable and something that we struggle with. Because no one should be able to tell me how to live. No one should be able to decide for me what's right and what's wrong. Nobody should be able to lay out a path in front of me and it not be my call. And see, that's a struggle that we face with. Even myself, who I've been a follower and a Christian, uh, I've been a follower of Christ and a Christian for 30 years now, and it's still a daily struggle for me to turn over this concept that it's my will, it's my way, I'm going to do it the way that I want to, because nobody can tell me how to live. And I'm 30 years into this, And I struggle with this on a daily basis. But here we have this Christ, this hope, this Messiah, this anointed one who has come to set us free. And really, I mean, wasn't that kind of the original temptation to begin with? This thought of controlling, this thought of not being in submission, this this thought of us being the authority in our lives. I mean, because if you think about it, Adam and Eve... When Satan came to him in the garden, he basically had just challenged what God said. 
You know, he says, did, did God really say that? Did he say that if you eat of that fruit that you're going to, that, that, that's going, he doesn't want you doing that because you're going to be like him. Did God really say, did he really say that you don't need to do that? And here's what he says in Genesis. He says, you will not surely die. So Satan, speaking directly against the command of God, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's almost kind of like Satan was saying, you know, God doesn't want you to eat of this because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's on this power trip, this authority complex. He doesn't want you to be like him. And that's the only reason he's doing it. See, he's just trying to keep you under his thumb. He's just trying to keep you in submission. He's just trying to keep you under his authority. He doesn't want you being a threat to him, so he's lied to you. And Adam and Eve believed it. And isn't that the same issue that we have today? Isn't that the same thing that we struggle with of wanting to call the shots? Wanting to think that what God's command tells us isn't necessarily what is really true. That maybe, maybe out of all of the billions upon hundreds of billions of people that have ever walked this earth, maybe I'm the one that can finally figure this thing out. Everybody else in history has gotten it wrong. There may not be anybody else in history to ever get it right, but maybe I'm the one that can figure this thing out. So what's God's response to this? We see it in verse 4 in Psalm chapter 2. This, this rebellion, this resistance, this, this concept. What's God's response? In verse 4 he says, He who sits in heaven shall laugh. Did, did, in my mind, and this is just the simple-minded man that I am, did God just say bless their hearts? And it kind of feels like, a well, bless their hearts. Look at them, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute that they think that they know what, they, what they're doing? And it says that he holds them in derision. Then in verse 6, his response continued is, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He's talking about Jesus here, who we've just talked about was the anointed one. So just real quickly this morning, why Jesus? What makes Jesus so special? Why does Jesus get to do this? Well, instead of me trying to, to say this, let, let me use the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, which meant that he was equal to, he, he was the same as, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why Jesus? Why does Jesus get this seat of authority? It's because Jesus earned it. Jesus deserves it. Jesus, who was perfect, who was God, with God, in heaven, voluntarily put aside the divinity, came from heaven, 
came into human form, took on the sacrifice, was the one who was spat upon, who was mocked, who lived innocently, who died because he was taking on our sins. The one who walked up Calvary's hill, the one who drugged the cross, the one who was beaten, scorned, the one who was humiliated, he earned that position and he didn't stop there. He, after the third day, rose from the grave and then 40 days later ascended to his proper seat, defeating death, hell, and the grave and being seated upon that throne of authority that God had prepared for him. Not just then, but he's still seated there now. So the question, I think, becomes for us this morning of knowing that God's God, and we're not, Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, and we're not. What do we do with that information this morning? What what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? And and understand that every time that we're in God's word, it's calling us to respond somehow. I think one of the first questions I want to ask you is, how do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? If you close your eyes, if you look, what's the picture that comes to your mind of Jesus? I see Jesus in paintings. I see Jesus in popular culture of paintings that's been done not only here recently, but within the past couple hundred years. I always see the one of Jesus uh, sitting with the children around him and the, the child on his lap. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. That, that. that was Jesus. But I think that we're losing the concept of this, all wrapped up in this gentle, meek, and mild Jesus, which Jesus is, Jesus was. I think that sometimes we lose the majesty and the reverence of who Jesus currently is. If you look at Matthew chapter 17, we, I'm not going to go there, but we have this Mount of Transfiguration image of where the disciples see him in glory and splendor not in his human form and they're just awestruck and the only thing that they can think of is what we always think of when we're awestruck it's like we should build something we need to you know we need we need to build a monument here we need to we need to we need to mark this time so they saw christ in majesty and not even full majestic form. And, and then I think about the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Whenever he goes and he is struck blind by this, by this what, the angel of the Lord. The, and then it, then it describes this bright light that blinded him. And then it says that I am the Lord. That's Jesus. If we look into Revelation, <laughs> whew, if you look into Revelation at some of the descriptions that we see of Jesus currently, it's not this nice dude who's got buckle clothes on you know it's not this guy who's walking around in a robe in biblical times it's jesus in majesty in splendor in glory in awe and in wonder that i think that we would absolutely be terrified if we truly saw jesus now so which is the jesus that you see the jesus that we can that we can wrap our minds around in human form? Or is he the anointed one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's seated upon the throne in full majesty, full splendor, and in all might and power? Is he the Psalm 2 version of Jesus? Is he the Matthew 17 and the, 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 the Paul encounter on the road to Damascus? Is he the revelation Jesus of majesty and of wonder? 
And I think that sometimes that we're guilty of watering down Jesus because we don't look upon Jesus the proper way. And that's the fact that he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And to go back and to quote the Apostle Paul again, that he is the name that is above every other name. The name of Jesus, at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So this morning, as I close, I'm going to ask the, the praise team, if they would, to come back up. I'm going to ask you, in your relationship with Jesus, believer, if you call yourself a Christian, your relationship with Jesus, do you know him as Jesus, your Savior, and your Lord? Is he the one that reigns over your life? Is he the one that rules over your life? Is he seated on the throne of your heart? And I think that uh, as we sang just a little bit earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I think that's exactly the picture that we need to see. Now this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, then I, I ask you to respond to the calling that Jesus is placing on your heart. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to partner with you in this. You can go to fccgrayson.com and fill out a prayer request. We have a prayer request tab there. We would love for you to do that. If you have other, if you're already a believer and you struggle with this like we do, with this, this authority, with having him not only as our Savior, but as the Lord of our lives, and you'd like for us to be praying with you, go fill out that prayer, prayer request page also. Pray with me this morning. God, I am so thankful for your word, so thankful for how it challenges my heart, how it, um, it moves me to respond. And, and sometimes it doesn't move me in a way that I'm always thrilled with because it challenges me, it convicts me. But God, I just pray that you would do that with our hearts this morning, that we see Christ as the anointed one. We see him uh, high majestic in glory and just be awe-inspired by him father i pray for those who are watching or listening that don't know you as their savior i pray that they would make that decision now and make the very best decision of their lives in jesus name amen 